Welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Sunday, October 11, 2015. Thank you all for joining us tonight as we paddle our lifeboats through the daunting waters of almost weekly mass shootings, catastrophic climate change, economic insanity, the possibility of World War III erupting in the Middle East, the geographical sea change of millions of war and climate refugees worldwide seeking safety and asylum, and of course, what looks more and more every day like a full-blown fascist state in America. Time to take a huge breath. Ah. And talk about what we can best respond to all of this, how we can best respond for the sake of our own sanity and for the sake of the Earth community. Now, before we jump into the show tonight, I want to remind all listeners from Northern California that I'll be in your neck of the woods from October 23 through 31 for a series of talks and events that I'll be presenting related to options for responding emotionally and spiritually to climate change and other aspects of the global crisis. I'm looking forward to connecting with all of you and engaging in juicy conversations and deepening our sense of community with each other. The details of my tour can be found at my site, carolynbaker.net. On the tour, I'll also be signing copies of my brand-new book, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. I'm doing a three-day workshop in Sebastopol, California, October 23 through 25, entitled Resilience in Chaotic Times. On Friday night, we're going to explore the planetary rite of passage inherent in the global crisis. And on Saturday, we'll be working with befriending the dark emotions of climate change. And on Sunday, we'll finish up with a day of joy and celebration with emphasis on embracing our humanity, gratitude in the age of catastrophe. After that weekend, I'm traveling north to Chico, Grass Valley, and Nevada City, and I look forward to meeting folks from that area because I know we have many in that region who listen to the Lifeboat Hour. So autumn is deepening now as the days grow shorter and the nights grow longer, and we're heading for the dark time of the year. Now, I know that many people listening to this show wonder if there is any other kind of time of the year, but that's part of what this show is about, namely, how do we create joy and beauty and express our creativity in a time of dissent and despair? I ask the question repeatedly on the Lifeboat Hour, how do we live lives of peace, passion, and purpose? And I often remind us that peace, passion, and purpose are the rewards that come from doing the deep work of consciously grieving in response to our predicament. Now, my guests today are seasoned, exceptionally skillful guides for people wanting to do this deep work because they've been guiding folks for many, many years in a community grief ritual that they have provided in the San Francisco Bay Area on the Day of the Dead in early November. Now, although the Day of the Dead falls on November 1st this year, 
This ritual will take place on Saturday, November 7th. And in a moment, I'm going to ask Barry and Maya Spector, our guests and grief guides, to tell us all about this powerful ritual. But first, I would like to tell you a bit about them. Barry Spector was on the Lifeboat Hour last year, and he writes about American history and politics from the perspective of myth and archetypal psychology. His book, Madness at the Gates of the City, The Myth of American Innocence, was published in 2010 by Regent Press, and you can read his blogs at madnessatthegates.wordpress.com. Maya Spector is a storyteller, poet, ritualist, retired children's librarian, and certified soul collage facilitator. And in a moment, she's going to tell you what that is. She was proud to be a member of Stone Dancers, a women's circle group that met weekly for 25 years. Maya has a book in progress on the Greek mythological character Persephone and has a poem published in the book Red Thread, Gold Thread, The Poet's Voice. And she also has poems in Queen of the Sacred Way and Talking to Goddess. And in June 2012, due to a broken foot that has necessitated spending a lot of time at home, she began a blog called Hanging Out with Hecate. Maya participates in Jumpstart Writers Group, and you can read some of her writings, fiction and poetry, on her blog, Hanging Out with Hecate. Maya and Barry have two wonderful grown sons who've started their own men's groups, two beautiful daughter-in-laws, two granddaughters, and a third on their way. Or perhaps this is an old piece of information from their website, but in any event, welcome to the Lifeboat Hour, Barry and Maya. Thanks for having us. We're glad to talk to you again. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Maya. Hi, Barry. Now, uh, in a story this past week in Al Jazeera, the headline appeared, Pope Questions American Exceptionalism, in which he reminds us that a country's greatness isn't inherent, but is born from great actions. So you, Barry, have written an amazing book entitled Madness at the Gates of the City, the Myth of American Exceptionalism, in which you dissect the archetypal notions of this myth and blow it out of the water. Why did you write the book, and what does it have to do with our seeming inability as Americans to grieve? Well, thanks for that great introduction. Um, let me say at the start, uh, well, we all know countries don't act, leaders act, and always in the interests of their ruling classes. But uh, to think about the question of exceptionalism, I'd like to pose a few questions. Uh, for example, why have the American people allowed our leaders to attack or attempt to overthrow 50 sovereign nations since the end of World War II? Or why do we allow our police to murder unarmed people of color every 28 hours? Why do half of us not even believe in global warming? So I wrote the book because, as a student of mythology, I saw the profound truth in Joseph Campbell's words that we continue to enact old myths that no longer serve us. So a slight correction, uh, the subtitle of, of the book is The Myth of American Innocence, by which I mean that from the beginning of our story, white Europeans evolved a series of mythic narratives that justified the invasion of this continent, the genocide of the natives, and the institution of slavery. These narratives essentially inverted history by portraying white people as the innocent victims of the people they were, in fact, subjugating. 
So this is a story we've been telling ourselves about ourselves for 400 years. It offers a series of ruggedly individualistic American heroes who always save the innocent community from the clutches of evil. And out of this comes the idea that we are an exceptional people. If we are always innocent, then it follows that anything we do in the world is always with the noblest of intentions. So we, um, that is uh, our news media, our politicians, our ministers, our filmmakers, and our teachers, uh, for the most part, truly believe that in all of history, we alone are an absolutely unique people, divinely ordained to spread the good news of freedom and democracy. I'm convinced that almost all white Americans, liberal no less than conservative, share these assumptions to some degree. So even when our actions produce colossal human misery, Vietnam, for example, or anywhere in the Middle East, we speak at best of mistakes that we made rather than in the terms of empire or colonialism. Now, in psychological terms, we believe that we have no shadow. But of course, this would describe only very young children. And to do that, we have to cast much of who we really are down into the shadow areas of our collective unconscious psyche. This denial would include our truly exceptional capacity for violence, and it explains why we react with such wounded innocence at the news of every new mass murder. Uh, Michael Mead has, has put it well. He said, um, because we deny death as a culture, we are compelled to inflict it upon other people. And I would add, the greater the denial, the greater the likelihood that we will act unconsciously in the world, upon the world, upon the environment then our mythology of innocence requires us to blame our victim for having provoked us. It's a curious, uh, ironic mix. We see ourselves as the victims of absolute e evil, and when we attack others, we create actual victims. We convince ourselves that it was their fault. So this is where our inability to grieve comes in. We never grieve the actions of our government or, or our police because to do so would be to question our own innocence. And opening up that idea would be to question our very sense of identity. But even more so, Americans grieve less than almost all other peoples because our American psyche comes primarily out of a Puritan worldview in which we want to see ourselves as among the elite of God, as heroes, as winners, optimistic, competitive, individualistic, always moving forward, upward, upwardly mobile. Such an identity has no room for the darker emotions. And so, as I said, we have always projected them onto dark-skinned people. Well, that's a mouthful. Well, more than that. And what a delicious mouthful, Barry. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for correcting me on the subtitle of your book, The Myth of no American problem. Innocence, <laughs> rather than Exceptionalism. But as you so clearly showed us, uh, when we have this sense of innocence, then it certainly leads to the sense of exceptionalism. Yeah. And, you know, uh, when my book is published, I'll send you a copy of it, uh, Human Shadow and the Myth of Global Crisis, because yes. we're saying a lot of the same things. And maybe I'll have you back on the show so we can talk about both of our books. Excellent. <laughs> but, you know, as many listeners know, um, I also facilitate grief rituals similar to the ones Barry and Maya conduct every year on the Day of the Dead. And in those rituals, we talk extensively about the consequences of not grieving personally and collectively. So, Barry and Maya, I'd like 
I'd like both of you to talk about this in depth because most people in our culture do not fully understand the price we pay for not grieving. So I'd like to hear about that. Well, I immediately think of what we heard originally from someone we learned doing this grief ritual from, Naladoma Somme, who is a West African teacher and shaman. And he said that when he first came to this country, it appeared to him as if he was seeing ghosts around everyone, that, that we were all carrying a burden of unexpressed grief, and that we didn't even realize it or see the consequences of it. And, uh, you know, I think about when I was working, uh, I worked for a city government for many, many years, and um, our bereavement policy there was if someone in your immediate family died, you could get three days off, and then right. you're back to work. So um, clearly the culture does not support in any way or create community to contain in any way the kind of grieving people need to do in order to deepen and in order to move those emotions through them in order for them to move on. And it's it's challenging. Uh, if you ever go to what I think of as kind of your standard funeral or memorial here, it's all very civilized. Um, you don't hear a lot of weeping and screaming and, and real expressions of grief. We're supposed to do that on our own, at home, in private. And uh, according to a lot of the indigenous teachers we've worked with, that's poison to the community and to ourselves. So I think we pay a big price for not being able to grieve and grieve in a communal way. Do you want to say anything there? Yeah, I'll add a couple of things. Um, yeah, I was also thinking about American funerals uh, where we are encouraged to keep a stiff upper lip and clergymen lecture that the departed is with Jesus or in a better place. Imagine, what could be a better place on this planet Earth, but uh, not in that kind of thinking? And, in our, uh, and also our sense for men, our sense of masculinity is bound up with ideals of always winning. Uh, then if, if that's the case, then only a wimp, or in uh, Donald Trump's terms, a loser, will show his feelings and weep openly. Uh, now, that's, of course, been changing uh, a, a, quite a bit in the last uh, 30 years or so, but it still is the, base, the baseline for emotional expression in, in this culture. And, and it's connected with shame. Um, uh, our great friend and yours uh, and, and wonderful writer, Francis Weller, uh, writes about this, of course. I've just begun uh, looking at his, uh, at his new book, uh, which I recommend for everyone. And uh, he notes that in, in, uh, it's very common among his therapy clients to apologize when they cry. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and if I were to connect this back to the, the earlier questions, I'd, I'd say our emotional styles reflect our mythologies. Um, and, uh, and as a result, as Maya said, we all carry this huge load of unexpressed grief that deeply diminishes us. And also, I, I really believe that if we can't uh, go into the deeper, uh, more difficult feelings, it probably blocks us from experiencing the great joys as well. 
Well, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I my experience is, and, and you probably, you guys have been doing this a lot longer than I have, but, but when I facilitate grief rituals, almost invariably somebody says by the end of the weekend, um, I can't believe how well I slept last night. I haven't slept that well for years. I can't believe how much lighter I feel. I can't believe how happy I feel this morning. Um, it's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, certainly there is um, a great lightening of the load when you can lay down part of the burden that you bear, and which we all do, because how can you not in the world that you described at the beginning of this hour? Right. Well, yeah, um, another, another thing that Maladona said was that uh, p- people who can't grieve are also people who can't laugh. That's exactly right, and uh, you mentioned Francis Weller, and um, he's going to be on this show on the 23rd of this month, and, uh, you know, in in his former book um, uh, regarding ritual um, called Entering the Healing Ground, uh, he talked about, you know, he he went to Maladoma's village in, in West Africa, in Burkina Faso, and I guess he participated in a grief ritual there, and he tells the story of seeing this woman who was just radiant and smiling and beaming and looking really happy. And he went up to her and, and he said, you know, you, you just look so happy and joyful. And she said, I'm so happy because I cry all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right. They so, have regular expressions of ways to grieve. Yeah, there. and they have not enough. You know. <laughs> There are so many funerals, and their funerals can go on for days, and people really have the opportunity to grieve not only for that uh, person who has just died, but anything residual that they're carrying. So uh, they don't need to actually plan grief rituals. They are able to do it that way through their funerals, as I understand it. Yeah, and I, I'm fond of saying, I don't know how true this is, but I'm fond of saying that the Dagger have a, a funeral at least once a week, even if nobody dies, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that they have this well, opportunity, you know, because you know, they believe we're, those... We're, we're, go ahead. It's interesting. We're talking about one of the few cultures, uh, indigenous cultures on, on planet Earth that still uh, holds to some of its old... Uh, myths and rituals. It's, it's, a, it's a place where, 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 where myth and ritual are still alive and still feed uh, the individual and the community. And, and I've, I've been involved in men's work for, for some 25 years, and I have to say that the refusal to grieve actually, on one level, actually uh, kind of reflects a certain um, intelligence. I'll try to explain this quickly. Uh, if we, I think we all know, and we all long for for something else. But we all we all we all know intuitively that the the ritual forms, the containers for holding um, um, the deep emotions, especially grief, uh, have not existed in our in modern and certainly American culture for a very long time. So, in a sense, we kind of know that if uh, if we don't have a place. Where, where a community will surround us and hold us uh, while we let out our grief, uh, then it's, in a sense, it's not really safe. And, and I can tell you that one of the most common things I've heard um, over 25 years in men's work is the statement such, something like this, 
I know I carry so much grief, but I feel that if I let it out, it will be overwhelm me and it will never stop. Right. And that, that actually is a kind of uh, statement of a certain uh, wise understanding of, uh, of the fact uh, you know, of what I just mentioned, that, that, uh, that we don't have those containers. And, of course, what we're speaking about uh, uh, you know, and, and when we think of the, the ritual imagination is we're trying to, we're trying to imagine or reimagine uh, uh, a, a culture that will begin to, uh, to uh, build those containers again. Uh, because we all long for it. That's one of the things that, that uh, Francis has spoken about in the five uh, gates uh, of grief, uh, that we long for, for something that, uh, that our ancestors knew for tens of thousands of years. And it's only been in the past, uh, depending on how you look at it, several hundred or a few thousand years when we, that we haven't had it. But that's, that's only a few seconds, and, you know, in, uh, relatively speaking, in the long uh, American... Uh, or the, or the uh, human evolution of the psyche. Right, and I'd like us to take a little bit of time now to talk about some of these other cultures. You know, what so many Americans don't fully understand is the extent to which other cultures engage in grief rituals or the ways in which indigenous cultures respect and respond to grief. And also in this country, we have very little understanding of the Day of the Dead, which is so elaborately revered and observed in Latin America. So could you guys say something about this? Well... Our, um, one thing that it makes me think of is that the hunger, I think, in, in our culture is so great for this that the uh, rather traditional Mexican Day of the Dead phenomenon has uh, been just growing here by leaps and bounds. You see, um, last year uh, in Oakland City Hall here in Oakland, California, there were altars to the dead for Day of the Dead in the Mexican style. So I think people understand that uh, we owe our ancestors a debt of gratitude and honor and respect for our lives. I think people um, want ways to bring that forth in this culture and because the uh, Latin American and Mexican, in particular, Day of the Dead ceremonies are um, so close geographically, and many people have gone down there to see them. Uh, and there are so many um, people living here now of Mexican heritage that um, it gives us the opportunity to see something that is held on in the culture where the ritual and the... Um, attending to our emotions as well as to honoring the dead um, have arisen so greatly in the last number of years. Do you want to say anything there? Yeah, uh, maybe I, I could say just a few words about the, the origins uh, 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 that came uh, into America through Mexico. Uh, you know, what, uh, looking back... Uh, when the Romans conquered uh, Western and Northern Europe, they discovered the Celtic cultures. And the Celts, uh, uh, for who knows how long, had, been, uh, had seen the world as, as, uh, in two halves, the dark side of, uh, of the year and the light side. And around our November 1st uh, was the time they called Samhain, uh, where the world itself shifted from the light 
to the dark. And for a few days, it was a very liminal, uh, uh, unpredictable time when the spirits of the dead would return. Uh, and the Catholic Church was never able to, uh, to stamp that out. And so around the 9th and 10th centuries, they, the Catholic Church created All Souls Day and All Saints Day, November 1st and 2nd. And uh, the Spaniards, 500, 500 years later, brought, that, brought those uh, holidays to Mexico where they discovered that the, uh, the Aztecs and other indigenous tribes had, had their own um, uh, ancestor and Day of the Dead ceremonies. And so eventually they, um, they f- uh, required uh, the Native Mexicans uh, to celebrate on, on the Catholic calendar. Uh, now, of course, uh, most Americans know this time as Halloween, which um, uh, I, I see as a kind of toxic mimic of all that, where we make fun of death. Uh, and, uh, you know, we tell the children, uh, be scared, but don't really be scared. You know, it's not really real. Right. So, and yet, and yet, below that is that is that same hunger we're talking about. Uh, I, I mean, it's probably the most popular holiday in the country now, that Halloween. Uh, and I, I think if we if we cook Halloween down, uh, we see uh, this long, long historical uh, uh, tradition uh, in, in 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 these several cultures. And of course, there are death rituals all across the world that that, are, that remain very lively and, and vivid. We've I've seen. Um, uh, the, the rituals in Bali, uh, the, the cremation rituals, and there are many other cultures uh, where these uh, really, really profound grief rituals are still very much part of their of their culture. So, speaking, were you going to say something, Maya? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, so we were just talking about the Day of the Dead in Latin America and, and what a rich, incredibly uh, deep tradition this, this is. And uh, I thought that, you know, at your suggestion, Barry, it would be really good now if we have a piece of music that kind of echoes the Day of the Dead. You suggested a piece by Chavela Vargas, a Costa Rican-born singer, and the piece is La Llorona, or The Crying Woman. It's one of the most moving pieces of music in human history and incredibly resonant with the Day of the Dead. Let's listen. Cariñoso 
Yo soy como el chile verde, llorona, picante, pero sabroso. Yo soy como el chile verde, llorona, picante, pero sabroso. De mi llorona, 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 tú eres mi chunga. Ay, de mi llorona, 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 tú eres mi chunga. Me quitará. De quererte llorona pero de olvidarte nunca me quitará de quererte llorona pero
quieres, llorona, quieres que te quiera más. Sí, porque te quiero, quieres, llorona, quieres que te quiera más. Si ya te la That was the late Chavela Vargas singing La Llorona, or The Crying Woman. And this is the Lifeboat Hour. I'm your host, Carolyn Baker, and I'm talking today with Barry and Maya Spector, authors and facilitators of the annual Day of the Dead ritual in El Cerritos, California, which this year is going to happen on Saturday, November 7th. So, Barry and Maya, let's take a couple of minutes to talk about what actually happens at one of your grief rituals and why this event is unique. Well, we spend a full day in community, and, um, you know, people are coming with all kinds of intentions and feelings. Uh, some have very fresh grief, and some are, as we were speaking earlier, just feeling like they're carrying the weight of the world. So we spend a, a good bit of time in the early part of the day uh, telling stories, uh, using poetry, sometimes music, so that uh, people have an opportunity to drop down into the feelings that they're carrying. Um, there's always invocations of those who have passed in this last year, um, and a lot of time in small groups so that people have the opportunity to tell their own stories and why they're there. That's a very big part of it. And then as we move into the later part of the day, we um, get into the more traditional water or grief ritual that um, Maladoma and Sabonsome have taught us, um, which is a way of being held in community and when you feel so moved, uh, processing towards a uh, built shrine where you can sit for as long as you need to and express whatever you need to express. Um, so it's uh, it's unique in some ways, but as you said, you have been doing these rituals. Francis Weller has certainly been doing them, and so we feel like um, we have just uh, been part of maybe a small movement to get um, validation for people's need to grieve and need to do it in community. But the poetry and the storytelling we find are very important because people um, need those images in order to um, activate their emotions and to uh, let their imaginations go. Yeah, Barry, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, I'll, I'll add a few more thoughts. Uh, going back to the notion of, uh, of what happens in the Mexican Day of the Dead, uh, there were always great feasts and, and, and great productions, uh, presentations of food for the dead. And, um, you know, we, we can, uh, I think we can interpret such a, a tradition on, on, on a number of levels. 
Uh, one is uh, the notion that the dead uh, want to eat uh, what they used to love to eat on when they were alive. Uh, but on, on a deeper level, and this level uh, is something that Martin Prechtel uh, uh, first taught us, uh, that uh, among the Mayan people uh, uh, of southern Mexico and Central America, uh, they also uh, have these uh, long traditions. And, uh, and uh, there's the notion that um, what, the, what the ancestors require of us is uh, two things, uh, beauty and our tears. And uh, especially when someone has recently died, there's, uh, there were worldwide traditions uh, that even the Catholic Church understands with, with its notion of purgatory, that the dead need the intercession of the living to weep for them fully so that they will be able to, to make it all the way over to the other side. And once they, once they do that, then they become ancestors who can be of help to those of us on earth who are still alive. Uh, but uh, here's the trick. Uh, if, if they don't find our tears and our beauty to eat when they come, especially this time of year, then the, all the traditions say that they will eat us literally. They will eat our children. They will cause violence and death and drug addiction and all, kinds, and all of the horrors of the world. So they come looking to be fed with something much uh, more profound than, than actual food. Uh, and so uh, that, that, that's an, an aspect of, of the ritual that we bring to the ritual, that when people come to the shrine, uh, uh, we tell them this is not a place to sit and, and calmly meditate and get centered. Absolutely not. Uh, this is a place for you to let it out like you've never let it out before, and it's a safe place to do that. Um, and another important thing is that at the conclusion of this part of the ritual, when everyone feels complete with it, we always uh, do something that will focus on the future and moving forward. Um, we have a tradition of naming the babies that have been born in the past year and of looking for the hope uh, that we can hold on to as we move forward out of this time of grieving. And as you were saying earlier, when people can really do this, they do wind up leaving feeling lighter and feeling like uh, they have dropped some of the load that they carry. Um, and another part of the ritual that's really important um, is as people are doing their grieving, when they move back from the shrine into the community, there's a welcoming that happens for them so that they feel part of the community, they feel seen, and they feel held. That's one of the sweetest parts of the grief ritual uh, that, that, that I've experienced and that I see other people experiencing is, you know, you come back from, from the grief shrine and you're welcomed by the community. You're supported. You know, this yeah. is like, you know, fabulous. You're, you're grieving for us. You know, thank you, uh, rather than the kinds of messages that we get about this in our culture. Well, I'd like to remind I'd like to remind listeners how to register for this event. Online, you can go to Barry and Maya Specter, and that's S P E C T O R 
barryandmayaspector.com and then click on Ritual and you'll find the information for how to register for this very powerful one-day grief ritual. Now, I'm aware that there are other rituals going on in the Bay Area, if not at the same time, then at other times of the year. Uh, can you guys tell us about what you know about those? Sure. There are a lot of things that start happening now in the Bay Area around Bay of the Dead. Um, the Spiral Dance, which is the Reclaiming Collective, uh, Starhawks Organization, um, the pagan and more in the more Celtic tradition of Samhain, is on the 31st, um, actually on Halloween night in San Francisco. It's always a wonderful event, and they usually get well over a thousand people coming, so it's it's quite something to experience. Um, there's always in the Mission District in San Francisco a procession on the actual Day of the Dead, which will be on Monday, uh, November 2nd. Um, it moves through the entire Mission District with Aztec dancers and winds up, uh, generally, almost always winds up in a park where there are beautiful shrines and altars built. Um, the Mission Cultural Center always has uh, beautiful altar uh, displays around this time of year. Um, the Oakland Museum as well always has uh, Day of the Dead exhibits and um, often an opening ritual for that as well. No anything else, Barry? Well, I just wanted to mention that uh, the spiral dance is something we've gone through many, many times over the years. And this, this year, it's the 36th annual uh, such event. Uh, and that, that gives, uh, gives us a sense of, uh, of how long, actually, uh, the, uh, the pagan communities uh, in, in the Bay Area have, uh, have been learning from the, the Latino communities. And so uh, these are, long, these are old, old traditions in the Bay Area that many people have grown up uh, with. And, 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 the, and the Day of the Dead procession is, is also probably at least 30 years old. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit. That segues right into the next uh, the next thought here. I'd like to talk a little bit about time. Um, it's only been within the last 30 or 40 years, I think, that we've had open rituals from other cultures and other traditions in this country. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was great openness to Eastern spirituality and then spirituality from Native American traditions and from other indigenous traditions around the world. And back in the 90s, you, Barry, and Maya, myself, and some of our mutual friends were students of Maladoma Somme and, and Sobantu Somme, and, and we took part in the grief ritual of the Dagara tribe of West Africa. Uh, and we're all old enough to remember the last 40 years in terms of the proliferation of other traditions in our culture. And I'm wondering what kind of impact you think they've made and are making on American culture. Well, I think that it speaks of the hunger that we have for real ritual and for real community. Um, as Barry has so eloquently talked about in his book, that the mythology that holds culture together has been gone here. And so we're trying to uh, bring together aspects of cultures that are still alive and that still have rituals that are meaningful and that hold the people in order to, um, you know, give us some sense of meaning in these difficult times that we have. So 
I think there's a huge impact um, on our culture and growing, as we can see with how the Day of the Dead is uh, becoming more and more widespread. I want to add a couple of things, if I could. Um, sure. I think I think we should point out and acknowledge that the resurgence of, of ritual uh, uh, in America has been pretty much parallel to the resurgence of feminine values and the uh, and the feminist movements, uh, which uh, which uh, resulted uh, also in the, uh, what do we call it, the spiritual feminist movement, uh, which is very much uh, rooted in ritual, but. When we think about rituals and myths uh, changing, we have to uh, acknowledge that these things change very, very slowly. Uh, this is just the beginning, I think. Uh, and yet, also, if, but if we're talking, if we're also talking about the myth of American innocence, here are where this is where cracks in the myth have been showing. Uh, and uh, once cracks appear in the mythology, uh, there's no, no there's no telling what's going to emerge. But I would like to imagine that, that the kind of things we're talking about will lead to a, a future uh, where America begins to, uh, to confront uh, its, own, uh, its own history uh, in, a, in, a, in a deep way. Uh, can we even imagine a future where a national ritual occurs televised uh, on all channels in which an American president stands in the middle of a huge stadium gets down on his knees, and the na- in the name of all of us, begs forgiveness from a Native American and a descendant of a slave. Can, can we imagine a future like that? Mm. Yeah. I can and I can't. <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> image. It's a beautiful well, we image. To. Yeah. We have to. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of the feminine, uh, Maya, you have your own archetypal focus on the Greek mythological character Persephone. Uh, please tell us about Persephone and why we need to focus on her wisdom at this unprecedented time in human history, and, and what work do you do with folks in relation to Persephone and why? Well, Persephone has really been um, with me since early childhood. Um, it reminds me of that quote, by Camus, I think you, I'm sure you've heard it, Carolyn, that uh, a person's life purpose is nothing more than to rediscover through the detours of art or love or passionate work those one or two images in the presence of which that person's heart first opened. Yes. So yes. for me, Persephone has, has been that. I actually, you know, you said in the introduction, um, I'm working on a book. I've kind of have a delayed project of working on a book about Persephone. But I do have a book of poems about Persephone that um, I have a a number of those poems on our website, and the book is available on my website as well, called The Persephone Cycle. Um, She's such a potent figure to me, and and certainly I'm not the only one, because we continue to see books written about her, plays, poems. Um, She's an enduring image. and I think a lot of it is the transformation that she goes through from being uh, a maid and an innocent child to queen of the dead. And it, it happens not by her own will. And so I think, well, how many of us actually go into a descent of our own will? Uh, right. Usually 
were dragged down through some great grief or kicking and screaming. But I think ultimately what she represents to me is that ability to move between worlds and to sustain herself and others in all areas, in all realms. And, uh, and so not only have I been doing writing about her and also about her and from her voice some of the time, but I've done numbers of rituals for women uh, working with the story because it's a mother-daughter story, it's, a, it's an initiation story, and it's a story of the descent that we all have to make in our lives. And uh, that interest in images, I guess, is what took me to Soul Collage, which you mentioned earlier, um, which is a process I've, I just love. It's uh, a process for creating and working with a set of cards, a collaging a set of cards that re- reflect your inner self. It was a process that came, was uh, developed by a woman named Cena Frost, and um, it, it's it's the most fun and simplest way of accessing um, deep information about yourself that I've seen. It's a collaging process and then a way of working with the collages. Um, anybody can do it. You don't have to be an artist to do it at all. Um, and uh, I just can't recommend it highly enough. People could uh, look at... Uh, the website soulcollage.com if they were interested in finding out more about that. Okay. And or on just, our website as well. Yeah, it's just soulcollage, S-O-U-L-C-O-L-L-A-G-E.com. And you also have a blog called Hanging Out with Hecate. What's the purpose of the blog? Well, I, as you mentioned, I started the blog when I was a little bit housebound with a broken foot and decided either I was going to have to reframe this into something positive or be kind of depressed about it. So I decided to take it as a writing retreat, and part of that was to start this blog. And what I realized is um, I do a lot of journal writing. I do the morning pages in the um, artist way kind of tradition. And when you write three pages every day, you turn out a lot of material. And I was realizing there were pieces, sometimes poems, sometimes just reflections, that I was probably going to lose if I didn't do something with them. And so I started to put them into a blog. Um, So much easier to do that than to try to deal with the publishing world, especially especially as a poet. I mean, poetry is just a tough thing to... um, to be successful in the publishing realm. So that's, that's where I went with the blog, and um, I'm hoping to be able to just continue to, to do some sort of regular entries on it so that I can um, keep fresh for myself and work on these pieces myself. Well, you know, on your blog, you have a wonderful poem called The Way Through. And I really like the poem because, as you know, we live in a culture that is obsessed with progress and soaring to the heights of success and the notion that everything is getting better and better all the time. But as you point out, Persephone is about the underworld and the healing and transformation we find by going down into the depths. Someone has famously said that we can only go as high as we're willing to go low. 
So can you tell us, well, just tell us briefly a little bit about the descent of Persephone and then read us the way through. We have about, oh, uh, eight minutes. Well, thanks, Caroline. Um, Persephone, for those who don't know the story, was uh, the daughter of Demeter, who was goddess of the grain and growing things, and Zeus, who was the, uh, the lord god of all. <clears throat> she was a maiden, and uh, she was taken down to the underworld by Hades, who was the lord of the underworld. This was done by his colluding with his brother Zeus. Uh, to bring her down into the underworld to be his wife. Um, her mother, Demeter, was grief-stricken at this and um, caused really what I think of as one of the first acts of passive resistance in the world. She withdrew all of the ability of the earth to produce and by doing so was able to get her daughter's return. But her daughter had taken, whether by force or by will, it's not clear, a pomegranate seed while she was in the underworld, and therefore she would have to return there for part of every year. So she's transformed basically from this young maiden to eventually becoming queen of the dead. And whenever she appears in Greek mythology thereafter, um, which is very seldom, but she's always in the underworld when she sighted again, even though technically she's supposedly only there three or four months of the year. So can you read us the poem? Yeah, The Way Through. I should just say that um, the initial image for this story, I have a bunch of figures that I um, bought while we were in Greece that are all uh, little uh, priestess or goddess figures with their arms raised. Mm. Head tilted back, gaze lifted to the heavens. The posture in and of itself causes spirits to rise. But the one I honor is not in those realms above. All the stories tell us that she reigns below. Under the earth? Well, not only that, but also beneath the surface of one's own being. The deep place, which is hard to remember, hard to find, hard to acknowledge, hard to face. The pools of the surface world are strong and compelling. Ascent into light is a magnetic draw, but following this goddess means agreeing to go into dark and buried places. There's no escaping it. I muse, is there no way to both rise and descend our spirit glory? and soul wisdom mutually exclusive? No, she says. The way of a life dream is to go deep and to rise, to dwell and thrive in the paradox. Come to the dark one and find the light. After all, I am the one who travels between all the worlds. And one more thing, the trickiest task of all, kindness must be the way through. To others, yes, but above all, to yourself. When you learn this, you will be truly free. 
Folks, I've been talking today with Barry and Maya Spector, who facilitate a powerful, poignant, and incredibly rich and rewarding ritual every day, every year on the Day of the Dead in El Cerritos, California. Uh, they are highly skilled guides for personal and collective grieving, and I adamantly, urgently recommend their Day of the Dead grief ritual happening Saturday, November 7th in El Cerritos. To learn more and register, please visit barryandmayaspector.com, and you can also find them on Facebook. Unfortunately, I won't be at the grief ritual or probably even see Barry and Maya when I'm in the area, at least this time around. But if you listeners are in the Bay Area, do not miss this beautiful, powerful day of healing and connecting with the community. Thank you so much, Barry and Maya, for being on the Lifeboat Hour. Thanks, Carolyn. And Yeah, and uh, thank you so much, and we'll be back next week with all of you listeners on the Lifeboat Hour. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes